Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Well, today you're in for a treat. We're in Papua, Indonesia, talking to Jim Yost about his journey with multiplying movements. really back to when I came to faith. Um, I grew up in uh, America, in California, in a Christian family, but my father died when I was really young, and I went on a path of rebellion, mad at God. Why do other boys have a father and I don't? Got into a lot of trouble, uh, got kicked out of school my last year of high school because of uh, drug dealing, got locked up in jail, and uh, reached rock bottom in my life. When I got out of jail, some kids invited me to a, a camp on top of a mountain. I'd never been to a camp, but I figured maybe that's a good place to go meet girls. <laughs> so God used that motivation to get me to the right place where I saw these young people on fire for Jesus. And I said, uh, that's good for you, but not for me. I hardened my heart for one day, two days, three days, four days. On the last day of the camp, God's spirit broke through. And uh, I got on my knees, cried my eyes out, uh, confessed my sin, turned my life over to Jesus. But I didn't know where this was going to take me. But it was at a time in California when there were a lot of us off the beaches, off the streets, coming to faith in what has later on become known as the Jesus People Movement. Um, some of you younger people <laughs> have just heard about this or maybe heard about your parents talking about it. Well, I was part of that in the late 60s, early 70s. A lot of us from uh, pretty bad backgrounds uh, in in America. And then it, it went to South America, even came over to the Philippines. It was a movement. It had all the aspects of movement out of control, out of man's control, but in God's control. And we were uh, all coming to faith quickly. There were no leaders uh, so I'm two weeks old in Jesus, and I'm put into leadership. Uh, how can you be a leader after two weeks? Well, in movements, there are no mature people. People are coming to faith fairly rapidly, and you must have a way of reproducing yourself into other people, modeling, taking people one step. And so uh, I was two weeks ahead of other people, so I was put into leadership. And a lot of us uh, were falling. It was messy. Movements are messy. If you want a nice, conducive, clean movement, you'll never have it. Because <laughs> movements are messy. They're not in your control. If you start controlling it, you'll lose the momentum probably. And so just trying to uh, find this way to God and uh, helping other people as I was on my own route and in this Jesus People movement, there really was only one mature leader, and his name was Pastor Chuck Smith, and he's going to be with the Lord now. Uh, and people say, wow, wasn't he a great preacher? And a lot of his sermons are put into volumes of books now. And uh, most of us would say, no, he was kind of dry <laughs> preacher and long-winded. He'd like to teach for a long period. But the thing that stuck out more than anything for movement was he had a father's heart. He, without spiritual fathering and mothering, there are never going to be a movement. And so he would 
put us in the raise up leaders quickly and you'd fall and he'd pick you back up and say try again i believe in you that was the key to the jesus people movement reproducing leaders even though they weren't perfect uh, with the father's heart and i was part of that and uh started hearing about mission and thought is mission for other people or or uh, or is it for me so i went on a mission trip <laughs> before it was popular to do mission trips uh, lots of people today, I asked, have you been on a mission trip? And they say, yeah, Jim, I've been on 20 mission trips. I said, why? Why are you taking you so long? You only need one mission trip. Because a mission trip is not a mission tour. Mission trip is taking yourself out of your comfort zone to go to some place that's uneasy, that's difficult for you in order to hear from God, to meet with God. And so I went to Japan and Korea for three months asking God, I got to know, is this mission thing for me or for other people? I'm not coming back to America until I hear from you. And yeah, Korea was was cool, getting up at 5 a.m. and praying with the Korean Christians. If you've never prayed with a Korean, go find one and pray with them. They're awesome. But I didn't hear God in Korea. It was in Japan, in a very hard place, uh, in Kyoto, kind of like the center of idol worship. And I was in a youth hostel one night praying uh, on a top bunk bed all night long, being honest with God, saying, God, I don't like being in a foreign country. I don't like not knowing the customs. I don't like not knowing the language. I don't like not knowing the, the, the food I'm eating. I can't be a missionary. And God came back very clearly to me and said, that's right, Jim, you can't be a missionary, but I can make you a missionary. And I realized that night that this mission call had nothing to do with uh my likes or dislikes, my abilities or inabilities, but had everything to do with being obedient to God. Obedience, huge, for calling, for movements, for a whole life. And so uh, I knew that night I'd leave America and never go back. Met my wife. She had a calling. We said, hey, let's do this together. <laughs> we got married and quickly left for Papua, Irianjaya, Indonesia. Uh, we were like uh, lots of people. Uh, lots of young people, they're excited about things. One week you want to go to China, next week you want to go to India, next week you want to go to Africa. But the thing that really grabbed our hearts when we exposed ourselves to what's going on in the world was unreached tribal people. People time is forgotten. So we looked at, the, we're the highest number of unreached tribal people in the world, and that was Irianjaya, the western half of the island of New Guinea, now called Papua, part of Indonesia. So that's where we came, and we landed, and we asked, where's the hardest group that nobody wants to go to? And they pointed us to the south, to the southern lowlands. So we immediately, in the first week, came, went down to the southern lowlands looking for a tribe and uh, ended up in the Sawi tribe. If you've read the book Peace Child, Don Richardson was in the northern ha- uh, southern half of the tribe. We were in the northern half of the tribe. And so to kind of uh, isolated two different groups by a lot of jungle and two river systems. So we uh, were in this tribe, and again, movement, saw movement happen. We began our life in the jungle uh, using uh, Philippians chapter 2 really as our method of evangelism. If uh, God can become incarnate, become like man, surely we can become like the Sawi tribes people. Uh, becoming one heart, one soul, one mind, coming into the world of people, not preaching at them, but showing them Jesus in their everyday life. So every day my wife would go foraging for food in the jungle. I'd go hunting in the jungle with the men. And in this way, we started getting this language together. And after a year, we're pretty fluent in the language. We're starting to preach and teach about Jesus, but no one's believing. 
We go into the second year, we're doing even more. They're starting to understand some. We go into the third year, we're doing a little bit of Bible translation now. They're understanding the gospel, but nobody's accepting it. And we're getting our first opposition. Village shaman, uh, witch doctors who have real power over the people. And they put out an ultimatum. They said, if anybody accepts this, this message has come from the outside, we'll kill them with witchcraft. And you could feel the atmosphere tense like a curtain of, of depression, of heaviness holding people down. Them wanting to rise up, but being held down by fear. And I, I couldn't do anything more. And one, one day cried out to God, God, I can't convince these people anymore about who Jesus is. Please come in a way that only you can do and open their hearts. And God did it in a way I would have never dreamed. Happened on a hot day in the jungle. The sun was in the noon sky. From our hut, we heard the death wail, the crying for the dead. When you hear that, you know someone's died. I jumped out of our hut to the ground. We're about uh, two meters up off the ground, round pole, foundation, thatch, thatch roof, bark floor. I jumped to the ground, ran the direction I heard the crying. Half an hour later, I came out at the riverbank where there's a thousand people. Women are throwing themselves in the mud the way they mourn the death of someone. The men are all in the shallow water looking for something. I asked the people, what, what's happened here? And uh, the guy next to me said, Jim, early morning, a young family got in their canoe, went off to the jungle to forage for food. When they came back, they beached the canoe and they took their packs of food up to their hut. But they left their little about one-year-old child in the canoe to wait for them. When they came back to get their little son, he wasn't there. He'd tried to stand up in the canoe and had fallen over into the water. For half an hour, they looked for him, could not find him. Because the water in our river is inky black with algae that grows in it. You put your hand a few centimeters under the water, it disappears. So they looked and looked, and finally one man comes up out of the water with the body of the boy in his arms. The stomach is swollen from water inhalation. He's not breathing. He's dead. They bring the body up on high ground, laid on a banana leaf, and everybody's mourning, berserk with grief. My wife comes on the scene, and because she knows the technique of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, she kneels down and tries to revive this little boy. For five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, she kept working. Finally, she stopped, realizing he's been in the water too long. He's really dead. And she starts to pray. I'm over here, and I stand up, and I start to vocalize a prayer I've never prayed in my life. Because there's a gift of faith that God gives. It's not a faith that we possess. It's a faith that God imparts at a point in time when he wants to do something. And just spontaneously, I started praying, God, even though these people don't acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, as a sign of your love and mercy, allow this little boy to live again. All of a sudden now, the mouth of that little boy came spewing all the water. He started breathing shallow, breathing big. His eyes opened. He was alive again. His parents grabbed him up. And everybody started screaming uh, and uh, astonishment. Finally, I quieted everybody down and I said, what we've just now seen, this isn't anything that I did or that my wife did. This is the God we've come to tell you about. He did this as a sign of his love and mercy. One week after that happened, we were invited to one village to teach and preach about the way of salvation for an entire week, morning till night, every day for a week. At the end of that week, the first people started believing on Jesus. Not one, two, three, but 10, 20, 30, whole family groups together coming to faith every week, wave after wave, till eventually 80% of this population uh, became born-again believers. When I talk to my friends in Africa, 
East Africa, West Africa, who are involved in movements, they all tell me every movement that they've seen happen came after a miracle. Miracles ushering, ushering forth movements. You may be in Australia, you may be in another country uh, listening to me talk, and you're saying, Jim, we don't see movements happen. We don't see uh, miracles happening here like you do in Papua. How come you see so many miracles in Papua? And I could tell you miracle after miracle for hours. Uh, why do we see more here? A couple of reasons. I, I think we're more desperate. If God doesn't show up, our people can't make it. And when you're desperate like that, God shows up. Um, secondly, I think God wants to do a lot more miracles, even wherever you are at right now. But he doesn't want us to grab the glory, to steal his name from the movement, uh, from the, from the miracle that just happened. Uh, example, when someone comes to faith, uh, we, uh, uh, come, a miracle happens in somebody's life. We usually bring them to church <laughs> and have them testify wrong. <laughs> Mo- uh, miracles are for non-believers to show them the love of God in the midst of them. It's not for Christians to get all excited about. Miracles happen for the point of evangelism. You see them happening all throughout scripture. Jesus uh, did a miracle so that people's eyes would be opened. Because the God of this age has blinded their eyes. Um, maybe a, another example about miracles. Um, a few years ago, uh, one of our we're in the city now, and on the edge of the city, a lot of population that have immigrated here from off island, other islands. And there was a, a lady who started coming to a women's group, discovery group, and she started following Jesus there. Never come to a church service. And then uh, when we had a big Christmas celebration, all of our groups coming together, she came. We had a, a big service, hundreds and hundreds of people, a couple thousand. Uh, and she came and she enjoyed it and went home and her f- husband heard about it. And he came at her with a machete. And he threw, came down with, on the, with the machete on her and she raised her arm to defend herself and the machete cut through her arm severing the whole arm just a piece of skin barely holding on and but the arteries have been severed the blood is pumping everywhere she's on the ground screaming uh, other ladies from her group live nearby they heard her screaming they came put her in a vehicle rushed her to the hospital the hospital here in our town couldn't handle it so they overed her they sent her to the hospital in the major provincial capital next to us the doctor, when he sees her, he says, wow, this arm is gone. I have to amputate. But she's lost so much blood. I'll uh, uh, stabilize the arm, give her blood tonight, and then in the morning I have to operate and amputate the arm. So that night in the hospital, uh, she's in there with the arm stabilized, receiving blood, and her the women from her group are all around her bed praying for her all night long in the hospital. And in the middle of the night, they want my wife to pray for her. Because my wife, I really believe, has gifts of healing. The majority of the people that she serves uh, medically or prayer or a combination of the two, nearly everybody gets healed. I call that gifts of, prayer, uh, gifts of healing. And so they want her to pray. So 
they ask her to pray, but she can't go there because she's in a stage of malaria, plus four malaria, the worst stage. She's uh, high fever and and, uh, convulsing in our house. So they bring a hand phone, a cell phone, and she prays over the cell phone. Can God do a miracle over a cell phone? Yes. She prays over the cell phone, and in the hospital, they put the other cell phone to Marichi, uh, this lady's ear, and uh, for her to hear. And this is what she said to me the next day when I was at the hospital. She said, Jim, when your wife started praying, my arm started shaking. This arm is severed. <laughs> so my arm started shaking. And then when she finished praying, my it settled down, and I, just, I felt calmness, and I went to sleep. <laughs> then the next morning... And they wheeled her into the operating room to have an operation. A little while goes by and the doctor comes out upset. He says, where are those women that were in the room with my patient all night long uh, until they took her someplace else and the operation's already happened <laughs> because the arm has reattached. The blood vessels are reattached. The bone is reattached. Everything is back. When it, we have before photos and after photos. Incredible. And the doctor says, I don't need to amputate. I'll just, the little bit of skin that's still torn here, I'll stitch it together and she can go home tomorrow. So the next day I arrived, I had been off island and I got arrived on the airplane and I went right to the hospital. When I came to this major hospital to the registration, everybody in this hospital, and it's a big hospital, everybody knows about this miracle. I say, where's the woman with the, oh, I'm, uh, she's over here. And they ushered me, every doctor, nurse, janitor, everybody knows where this is. And so I come to her room and it's full of people. And I wade through all the people. I finally get to her bedside. And here she is sitting up in bed, singing praises, praises to Jesus. And I take her home that day. And as I took her home to her house, I said, why did God do this miracle for you? It's not so you can come to a church service and tell other Christians about this. It's so in your neighborhood, you can tell everybody, show everybody who don't know God about the power and kindness of God in your life. Mercy of God for you. And it's so you can bring them the faith and see a movement, a church planted there. And that's what happened. She led others to come to faith because of this miracle in her life. I just say that because God wants to release a lot more miracles. And if he knows, we won't steal the credit. And we'll use that miracle to see a movement happen. I believe you and I would see a whole lot more miracles in our lives. So after we saw our tribe come to faith, we spent 20 years there with that tribe. And our job was done. And we said, God, where's the next tribe in town? Because there's 250 tribes and languages in Papua. I figured God would take us over the mountain or down the river to another tribe. But God surprised us. He said the new tribe in town is the younger generation. They have their own language, their own culture, and you're losing a whole generation. And yeah, all the young people are moving from their tribal homelands into the cities. Urbanization happening here. Everybody's going to the cities to look for jobs, to look for school. And in the end, they drop out of school, they don't get jobs, and they start drinking alcohol on the side of the road. First introduction to alcohol, and, they get, and they're drunk in a drunken stupor day and night on the side of the street. And Papua is known for drunkenness. So we moved to the city to work with problem young people. See, my wife and I have a goal in our life, a theme. We want to do those things that nobody else wants to do or can do. 
If somebody else can do it, let them do it. I want to do that stuff that nobody else wants to do or can do. So lots of people know how to do ministry to nice, clean-cut kids. They don't know, know what to do with broken young people. And the majority of young people today around the world are broken because of broken homes. Divorce is no longer a Western ph- phenomena. It's come to the East. It's come to everywhere. Hong Kong, 50% divorce rate. South Korea, approaching 50% divorce rate. Uh, it's, and who are the, the victims? These kids. And they have lots of brokenness, lots of pain. And so we started doing uh, church for uh, problem peep kids. We started with drunks. A group of boys that drunk on the street, a gang. We brought them into our home. That was our first church. I figured if Jesus could begin with 12 delinquents, I could begin with 12 delinquents. They stopped drinking, got their life together, and uh, started bringing new new people. Uh, and we started this church that we call it the Problem People Christian Church. <laughs> uh, the House of Glory is really what we call ourselves. And uh, it's just a place where you can change one your old life for a new one and find glory in your life from God. And it's for for people with problems. So it started with drunks and then extrapolated to drug addicts and then to drug dealers and then prostitutes and then uh, runaway kids and then jail inmates, uh, and then HIV AIDS patients, which we have a lot, and now broken families. So all the people in our church are broken people. And it's church without walls, church happening anywhere and everywhere. And you could say uh, we reach movement status. We made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. Because a movement, what's the definition of movement? Movement is not writing a book or having a TV channel or a YouTube channel, uh, popularity. No, movement is two, two, two. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, where Paul said, hey, Tim- Timothy, what I give to you, you give it to somebody else who gives it to somebody else. Four generations, from Paul to Timothy to another one to another one. When you reach four generations of new believers, then you can say a movement has begun. If you haven't gotten that far, don't talk movements. So when here in what's a problem, young people, we reached that, that status. We weren't calling it movement at that time. We were just saying church without walls, church happening anywhere and everywhere. And it was going great. Until God uh, shocked me again uh, 15 years ago on the 26th of December when off the west coast of Sumatra and the other end of Indonesia, uh, under the water, plates opened up and sucked all the water off the west coast of Sumatra. And on the coastline, all the it's all dry and all these kids are coming out of the villages on the coastline getting free fish that's on the dry coast. But then the plates came back and the first wave of the, of the tsunami came up on land. And it took out all those villages. Nobody could run fast enough. Um, then there was a third wave. And, uh, there were three waves of the tsunami. The first one was dark and hot, like a volcanic eruption under the water. Then there was a second wave. And there was a third wave. The third wave was 30 meters high. And at the end, total devastation. Uh, I, could, I was on the other end of Indonesia when this happened. You can't get much further away. Papua from Aceh. But like everybody, we were watching 24-7 on TV, what was being filmed. And one day, two days, three days go by without any aid getting in because uh, all the roads were severed. Nobody, and part of the terminal in the airport had fallen in. So 
people were not able to get in to help for three days. And the third day after the tsunami, every morning I run. I just had my early morning runner this morning. My wife and I run 10 kilometers every day, and it's our time to pray and hear God talk to us as we run. And we run to keep our fitness up so we don't get malaria all the time here. And so on the third day after the tsunami, I went out running. And as I'm running, God says to me, Jim, go to go to Aceh. <laughs> okay, I go back home, gather the family. I said, God wants us to go to Aceh. Okay, <laughs> we load up. My daughter, who was running our medical clinic for the poor, she went to medical training in America, came back, and now runs our medical clinic for the poor. She gathered 150 kilos of medicine and a team. We got plane tickets. We left, and we arrived in Banda Aceh on the night of the third day after the tsunami in the first commercial aircraft allowed to land. Miracle. And as I come off the tar- the onto the tarmac, off the plane to the tarmac, I smell the stench of rotting bodies everywhere because no cleanup has gone on for three days. Bodies are everywhere. I walk through this major modern city where half of it has been swept out to the ocean, like with a broom, it's gone. And I realize 250,000 people have gone to a Christless eternity. And this really bothered me. Because people said, Jim, you're so successful in Papua with all this stuff happening. Uh, but when I saw this vast need now in East Western Indonesia, it makes everything I look doing in it. Eastern Indonesia, so small. Uh, and I, and it, it just really bothered me. Uh, came back home to Papua after a lot of work in Aceh for quite a while. And a few weeks later, I'm on my motorcycle. I'm a guy that likes to ride a motorcycle. I don't drive a car. And I'm riding my motorcycle, and someone is coming from another direction, hits me broadside, takes my bike many meters down the road, and I go flying through the air with the Lord. And as I come down and kiss the asphalt, my shoulder cracks in two places. Uh, one side is a different shape than the other side now. <laughs> but I survived. And I asked God, God, uh, how many more of these accidents can I survive? How much more time on this earth do I have? And I promised God that day, with the remaining time I have, I won't be satisfied with a few growing churches in Papua. Could my eyes see a movement from one end of this country to the other before I leave this earth? So I gathered 12 leaders from a youth ministry network that I was part of at that time across the country. These are people who are successful. They, they can gather thousands of kids in church services, but they were frustrated. Is that all there is? Just rah-rah in church services? So we went off to the jungle for three days to pray and dream. No other agenda. Just pray and dream. And at the end of three days, we agreed to erase the blackboard. Everything we know about how to plant churches, forget it. Everything we know about how to evangelize, forget it. And go back to the guidebook, uh, the Bible. How did Jesus plant the first church? Because I had a sneaking suspicion if, G- if I did it Jesus' way, I might get Jesus' results. But I can do it my way and get results, but maybe there's more. So we went back to see how did Jesus plant the first church. And it's not the book of Acts, it's the Gospels. The 12 disciples are his first church. And we wanted to get the DNA that he put into those guys that then erupted on the day of Pentecost. And the church then exploded. <laughs> okay, what's that DNA? We got one DNA and we went out and practiced for three months across Indonesia, came back, held each other accountable. Got another DNA value, went out and practiced for three months, came back, held each other accountable. After a year, these guys are seeing stuff they never thought possible. After two years, they're training people in their different regions what they're learning. Now, after 15 years, uh, 
been a, a lot uh, a lot of churches planted a lot of people come to faith I'm not going to talk about numbers but uh, our eyes have seen movement happen here that's gone all across this country and to other countries uh, adjacent to here but uh, movement that's why I want just to kind of close off this little podcast if it's happening in one place I think it means God wants it to happen everywhere I don't think he uh, favors Indonesia over Australia or over America or any place else. Uh, if it's happening in India, if it's happening in China, if it's happening in Africa, if it's happening in Asia, probably means he wants it to happen everywhere. And the problem is not that the harvest isn't ready. It's the harvesters, us, we're not ready. And what would it look like if God all of a sudden this week, 50% of your population came to faith? Would that change the way you do church? Yep, sure would. So we need to get this uh, wineskin ready for the harvest because it's the best time of our lives. Uh, stuff is happening around the world. Uh, every day, every week, even in this pandemic, this COVID pandemic, we're seeing awesome stuff happen. Uh, nothing is going to thwart God's purposes. So keep believing in movements because that's what God's doing today and all across the world. Uh, and where you're at, I pray, God, let movement happen. These people who are listening and are watching today, I ask that you're, you take them into the center of your will and keep them right there. Don't allow them to go out one step and let your perfect uh, kingdom come. Your will be done for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Thanks for listening. Visit movements.net for everything you need to get started and to encourage you to keep going in multiplying disciples and churches everywhere.